Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. John 12. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and so they decide to throw him a, a celebratory dinner as a way to thank him and to honor him for this astounding miracle that has taken place. Martha, we assume, is in her usual place, organizing the meal and making sure it's well served. Lazarus, perhaps he's a little more quiet at this, at this dinner than normal, as he's sitting at the table just astounded by what has happened to him. And Mary, uh, she's also at a customary place, strange place. We talked about it last week, uh, at the feet of Jesus. And she is about to do something extraordinary. That's what we're going to look at. Six days before the Passover, so this would be, I think, the Saturday uh, prior to Holy Week, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, Objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. But you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. This story takes place at a time when there was no such thing as deodorant. No running water for showers. People rarely took baths. This was before toothbrushes were invented, before even toothpaste was around. Imagine, I mean, I have a hard time imagining life without toothpaste and dental floss. But um, all that to say, everyone smelled bad. Like, they smelled really, really like bad, bad. And what the rich people would do in the first century is they would use perfume like this to cover their body odor. Well, John tells us in the passage about Judas's reaction to Mary's use of the perfume. But what's really interesting is if you go to the Gospel of Mark, which is a parallel account of this, Mark chapter 14, and in verse 5, we read, again, Mark's version of the story, and he, here's what it says. It says, and they rebuked her sharply. They. <laughs> they. Like the, the whole room. And what's really interesting, it just so happens that the word for re- rebuked her sharply, that's kind of a paraphrastic, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a euphemistic rendering of the Greek verb. It turns out it's the same Greek verb that we talked about last week when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he's just full of 
anger and fury. It said that in classical Greek, that same Greek verb is used to describe a war horse snorting in its fury. You see what's going on. What Mary did was so outrageous to everyone in the room that pretty much the whole room started to yell at her. They were so upset. They were like, what are you doing? What was it about her action that could make them so upset? That could completely change the the complexion of a celebratory dinner that was given in honor of Jesus Christ. Well, there are three things, three amazing things that she did. Number one, she broke the bottle. We read in verse 3 that this was a pint of pure nard, a very expensive of perfume, a, a pint, approximately 11 ounces. And you think about it, uh, 11 ounces is a lot of perfume. I mean, 11 ounces is nearly a can of Coke. <laughs> and uh, Mark tells us, again, that uh, it came in an alabaster flask, so a, a very ornate uh, white alabaster flask. Normally, what you, what you do with something like this, you take off the lid to the bottle, and you would, you know, dab a little bit on your body. But when Mark says, John doesn't, but Mark says this, Mary instead of taking the lid off the bottle, she breaks the bottle. She breaks the neck of the flask. And when you break it, that means it's not a little dab that's coming out. It means you're using the whole thing. That's exactly what happens. She pours all of it out. Now, Judas, if he can be believed here, says the value of this perfume is worth 300 denarii which in today's value would be about $35,000. I mean, this is a super expensive bottle of perfume that it would, have, would have been imported from India, which is where nard grows. And unless Martha and Mary and Lazarus were fabulously wealthy, like come from a hugely wealthy family, this would have easily been the most valuable thing that they owned. I mean, 35 Gs. <laughs> People usually don't blow that kind of money in three minutes, do they? Now, here's my guess, and it's just a guess, but I think that this anointing was prearranged by the three siblings. They probably had discussed it beforehand. I mean, it was a celebratory dinner in honor of Jesus. Mary was to you know, go into the, to the room and take this priceless family heirloom, this, you know, the, this treasure of the family, and during the meal, she would come in and she would honor Jesus by... by uh, entering the dining area and putting a little drop of it onto him as would be appropriate for the guest of honor at the meal. Um, she wouldn't have been in the room to begin with because the women don't, they, they don't come into the room when men are eating. Um, and Martha also wouldn't have been in the room. She would have been most likely in another part of the house, maybe in the kitchen, you know, doing the dishes, preparing you know, other, other uh, plates of food. When all of a sudden she thinks, that's kind of strange. I mean, I, I hear raised voices coming from the dining area. Uh, men's voices. What's, and then, and then the smell. Like this overpowering fragrance of the perfume would have filled the whole house. And, and Martha, um, I can just imagine, she, she looks with wide eyes and is like, Mary, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? What have you done? What ha- and Lazarus is at the table and he's watching this. Mary, what have you done? 
And what she has done, what she has done, what she has done is she has told everyone in that room, I am not going to be conditioned by cost. I'm not going to be conditioned by the cost. I will not live a life of discipleship where I say to Jesus, I'll follow you if it's not too expensive for me. I'll follow you as long as it is profitable to me. I'm not going to be conditioned by the cost. I'm going to break the bottle. I'm going to break the bottle and it's all coming out. It's all coming out. And I wonder, have you ever done that for him? Have you ever broke the bottle and it's all coming out for him? Well, shortly after this event, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Judas makes his decision to betray Jesus. It's almost as if this act of, of pure wastefulness sort of puts him over the edge and he can't take it anymore. And so he ends up selling Jesus out for, what, 30 pieces of silver. Any idea how much 30 pieces of silver was worth? It was about $250. He takes $250 and, you know, he stuffs it into his pockets. And what I want you to do right now, I I want you, maybe you need to just close your eyes, but I want you to really, really, really concentrate on these words that are written from, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Close your eyes and just listen to this. Here's, Here's Paul speaking. We brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth, from the true faith, and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Did you hear that? The love of money, the desire to be rich, in the Apostle Paul's words, is like suicidal. It's, it's suicide. And we see it in Judas, don't we? Judas, he had witnessed Lazarus raised from the dead. There is a man who was previously dead sitting at the table eating dinner with him, and he saw this man come back to life, and yet he wants $250. It's, that is why Jesus says it is, hard, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man who's in love with money to ever get a sniff of the kingdom of heaven. It's as Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will de- be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And so we have one of the most stark contrasts in all of the Bible between two characters in the same room. Mary would rather have Jesus than 35 grand, and Judas would rather have 250 bucks. God have mercy upon us. So the the first amazing thing she does is she breaks the bottle. And she pours it all out. Secondly, 
the second amazing thing in the passage is she, she, uh, she puts the perfume on his dirty, smelly feet. And you may already know this, but having to mess with other people's feet back then was considered extremely demeaning because their feet really stank. <laughs> they smelled really, really bad. And Jewish rabbis, they taught that, that they, they could basically ask their devoted disciples to do just about anything for them, except you would never have to unlatch the shoes and take the shoes off, the sandals off of your rabbi's feet, because, you know, that's the task of a slave. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons, beginning in chapter 13, when Jesus goes and he washes his disciples' feet, they're completely aghast. They can't believe it. He's washing our feet. He's touching our feet. Every man in that room, except for Judas, loved Jesus. There was not a single man in that room who, who had ever touched his feet. Never. Like we have our rights. We have our rights after all. We're, we're disciples, but we have our rights after all. Except for Mary. And so what is she trying to say by this action? I think she's saying, there's nothing I won't do for you, Lord. There's nothing. No limits. I mean, only a Jewish servant could be asked to put on or take off sandals and, and clean feet. But, but I, I, give up, I give up my rights to self-determination. There is, there is nothing Nothing, nothing you can ask of me that I will not do for you. And I wonder if you've had moments like that before in your life where, where you, you said there's no cost that's too great. There's no demand that's too large. Like you were just so gripped by Jesus' love for you that you wanted him to know how much you loved him and how grateful you are for him. And you, you said there's just nothing too big. There's no ask that is too great. And if you've had moments like that, I wonder, has your devotion cooled? It really is so easy to read. I find, at least for me, to read a passage like this in this kind of a state of cool detachment where I'm like, oh, that's a really beautiful thing that that she did. <laughs> and, you know, I'm reading along and, oh, you're a character in the story. That was really nice of you. But then I just never, like, look back in the mirror <laughs> and, and have her look at me. You know, and so has your devotion cooled since you last told him that? Or if you're, if you're like, you know, Brad, I've never really said that to Jesus before. I really have, I mean, if I'm being honest, if, if I'm really being honest, I've never said that to him before, then maybe the right response to this passage is, is simply to tell him that's the kind of relationship you would like to cultivate. That, that is what you desire. I mean, one of the, really one of the first steps in ever reading the Bible and having the Holy Spirit work on you is where you, where you can just honestly say that I'm not there, I'm not what you just described, but I want to be. <laughs> I want to want to be, and to articulate that to him. Augustine, uh, a great theologian, had a very interesting take on this passage. No surprise, you know, he's utterly brilliant. But he's answering the question, how do we pour out what we have at Jesus' feet? Like, how do we do this? And Augustine, on the passage, argues we can do this by sacrificially serving others who are in need. Now, that answer by him is, 
it's rather counterintuitive, isn't it? Since the whole passage is about how it's better to pour out your riches on Jesus instead of giving it to the poor. Um, But what Augustine, he goes on, he says, he points out that elsewhere Jesus makes the statement that when you care for those who are hungry, when you care for those who are naked, when you care for those who are sick or imprisoned, whatever you have done for the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done it for, for me. He's saying you have done it for me. And therefore, when we wash others' feet, you know, metaphorically or even Literally, when we wash others' feet, when we serve in ways that are costly, inconvenient, humbling, when our service is dirty, when our service is long, when our service is, uh, I don't even want to go over to their house right now. When we, when we do that, when we do that, he says, you do it for me. You do it for me. Let's go back to verses 7 and 8 if you want to look there. He makes a statement, you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, um, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. What she has done is anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I think when Mary heard, the, uh, heard those words, she must have, it must have taken her breath away. She would have been like, I did what? <laughs> I did What? Uh, Because I think that this is one of those instances of a character doing more than they realize what they're doing. So she didn't, I doubt that she grasped that Jesus was going to die in a week's time. Um, But Mark's gospel tells us that she poured the the, the perfume over his head. And then John's gospel tells us she poured it over his feet. And so symbolically, what does that mean? He's been perfumed from head to toe, from top to bottom. In preparation, yes, for his burial. But even we who know the end of the story know that there's something even bigger happening here. Because you don't simply anoint a body for burial. There are other people who get anointed anointed in the Bible. Who are they? Priests and kings. You know, it was always used for commissioning someone to public office for priests and kings. And so this anointing not only prepares Jesus for his burial, but it identifies Jesus as the king priest who, yes, will go to a grave, but not as a helpless victim, as a triumphant conquering king priest who kicks the devil's teeth out, who, you know, bursts the, the bonds of Sheol, as we talked about on Easter Sunday. So this is a, she's doing far more than she realizes. This is an anointing that prepares for death, but also prepares for his triumph. And that's part of what makes it so beautiful. So the second thing is she pours, pours the perfume on his, his dirty, smelly feet. And then the third incredible um, part of the passage, and you probably already, you know, know what I'm going to say where it is, but it's her hair. Jewish women wore their hair up. In the ancient world, it would have been thought to to be so uncouth, uh, almost scandalous for a woman to let her hair down. Uh, certainly for a married woman to let her hair down, that would, uh, that's such a no-no. Like, that, she's a woman of loose morals, they would say. But, but even for a single woman, who we think Mary is single, walking to, into a room of men, like a dozen or so men, 
and taking her hair down in front of them and then walking up behind a man and using that hair to wipe down his feet. Like, there's nothing normal about that. (laughs) You ask, well, what does it say in the Greek? The Greek says it's weird. (laughs) Like, she's breaking all social norms and customs. She's doing something that would frankly make most of us very uncomfortable if we had been in that room. You know, when you look at me as a pastor, do I seem like a guy who is eager to uh, flaunt and, and destroy social norms and boundaries? No, like I'm, I, I'm obviously totally a conformist. <laughs> and when you look around at our church, like we're Presbyterians, we, we don't, it's not exciting to us to break social conventions. We, we follow social conventions. We look down on people who break social conventions. Let's not be too quick to think, oh, Mary, this was wonderful. We're so proud of you. Because if we had been there, we probably would have gotten a very nervous feeling in our stomachs. And we would have thought, we would have thought, this is in terribly poor taste. Terribly poor taste. So we ask the same question we've asked with each of these. What was Mary saying by this action? And what she's saying, (laughs) what she's saying is, I don't care what you think. Martha, she doesn't care what Martha thinks. She doesn't care what the men around the table think. She doesn't care what culture thinks and social norms dictate. She doesn't care what you and I in Boise, Idaho, 2,000 years later think. All she cares about is what Jesus thinks. All she cares about is what Jesus thinks of this statement of, like, I give all of myself to you. Here's my heart. Here's me. Here's all of me. I give it to you. She's like David dancing with abandon before the Ark of the Covenant in worship. She, She doesn't care what Michael, his wife, thinks. She doesn't care. And it's such a different, it's such a contrast. Again, we got another contrast. Religion is very concerned about what others think. Religion is all about doing the right things to look right in the eyes of others. Religion is very concerned about the expectations of others, about appearances. Religion never lets its hair down. Religion, it it lacks that just like, that whole sense of devotion, that impulsive, impetuous devotion that we see in this passage. Religion lacks sincerity and genuineness. Another pastor pointed this out to me, but that when she breaks the bottle, when she breaks the bottle, she's saying, take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. And when she touches his feet, she's saying, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer um, mine. And when she lets her hair down, when she lets her hair down, she says, take my love, my Lord I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. And the problem, friends, the problem is that you and I have sung that hymn, Take My Life, Let It Be, a bunch of times. And we've sung it religiously. You know, we've sung it religiously. We've, we've not really thought about what was being said. And we, we've sung it Without that kind of wild abandon of love, of just sheer, of sheer love, 
Um, There's another hymn that we have sung many times before, probably religiously. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And we have sung that like in monotone. (laughs) We've sung it religiously. And what I can hope for you and what I do hope for me is for Christ to, to like so captivate our hearts that we feel that impulsiveness of here's me, Lord. Here's all I am. I don't care about what anybody else thinks. You can have my heart. Um, that, that kind of like, what would a person, what would we do if somebody in the middle of our worship service just started twirling and dancing with their arms up as they were singing one of these things? Like we would probably blanch. <laughs> but, but, I want that to happen. It does seem like her actions are just impulsive. Like she walked into the room and she intended to follow the the orders. Give a little dab of perfume on him. (laughs) But in the moment she was taken aback by such gratitude and love that she acted in a way that was reprehensible to everyone there. And you know what I found uh, that I have felt that way at times. At times, I, I've wanted to give myself to the Lord. I want to just, like, here's my heart. It's yours. It's yours. Um, I've got to do this. I've got to do this now. And, but whenever that happens, there's another little voice in the back of my head which says, are you sure you want to do that? You want to say that to him right now? Well, are you sure? Why rush? Let's, let's just give things a little more time. That's a little rash. Aren't there better ways to express your devotion? (laughs) No, when we are overwhelmed by God's mercy, we just need to act on it and not procrastinate it. Because if we procrastinate it, it's gone. We know ourselves. It will be gone. It will never happen. And let it be said that when you respond to God in an impulsive, outlandish way, most likely... Not everyone will agree with what you do. When Mary does the right thing, the the most beautiful thing, a thing that is far greater than she even realized, she's rebuked in anger by the whole room. And that may happen to us. Finally, in conclusion, the key to the passage is certainly the smell. They say that smell is the most powerful sense human sense for bringing back memories. There's something about the olfactory bulb in the brain's limbic system and how it forever links the scent of blackberry cobbler to your grandmother's kitchen. Uh, For me, it's the the smell of fresh rain on Sonoran Desert. I mean, that is my most happy place. Uh, It's, I always associate it with hiking in the desert, just place of sheer beauty. But isn't it true since take us back to when? to moments of our past that we remember and usually remember quite gratefully. Well, you maybe have heard me say this before, but scholars have suggested that, I mean, this is pure nard. I mean, this is $35,000 worth of perfume. Um, It would have been so potent and it would have been used in such large quantity that the smell of it would have remained on Jesus for the last week of his life. You know, um, this, this, as I said at the beginning of the passage, it, it took place on Saturday, and then Jesus dies on Friday. So you see what it means, don't you? All through Holy Week, Jesus was 
fragrant, like amazingly fragrant, because he wouldn't have taken a bath. He wouldn't have, they, did, they didn't do that. He was fragrant. He was fragrant on Good Friday. He was fragrant all throughout his cruel trials and beatings and floggings and, and even the, the death of the cross. He was fragrant. And when Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body of the Lord, the, the air around Jesus' body, yes, it's, it was the stench of death. And yet it was the fragrance of Mary's love that stayed with him. That stayed with him through the most agonizing week of his life. And I think that's what we want to want to have in, in ourselves. We want to have an unselfish, uncalculating, unashamed devotion to Jesus. Um, that's where we want to get to. And that's what you should tell God about. That, that's, that, that's where you want to get to. Tell him that you want that to be true of your life. And then trust him to work inside of you to make that happen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's likely true that most of us uh, in our church, we know a lot of right answers about Jesus, about who he is, about what he did. Um, We know a a lot of very important doctrines of, of Christ as we should and as we must. But if we're honest, we may not we may not know his worth like Mary did. Um, there may be more of a cynical, calculating, don't rock the boat attitude in us than we like to admit. But on our best days, O oh Lord, in those spirit-filled moments, it is our prayer over and over that you would give us Jesus. That we would say goodbye to to goods and kindred, and you would give us Jesus. And whatever else may come, whatever else you have in store, whatever else the world may give us in prosperity or adversity, um, but that you would give us Jesus. That's what we want. May that be our prayer now and forever from our hearts. Amen.